Hello, good evening. Welcome to our Bible study. We're in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 16. So far, as we've worked our way through the first chapter, especially of 1 Corinthians, we've seen Paul raise three truths that are designed to shatter pride. First of all, in the message itself, and that's chapter 1, 18 to 25, and then um, the members of the church that God saves, that's 26 to 31. And last time, the message that God deploys, that's chapter 2, the first five verses. So by the standards of the world, the gospel message is foolishness. And the members of the church are regarded as foolish and weak for believing it. And then last week, the, the ministry doesn't impress contemporary norms or meet expectations of what ought to characterise powerful rhetoric or charismatic leadership. And yet it is precisely by these means, through apparently foolish message, proclaimed by an unimpressive ministry, that these weak church members have been saved to the glory and the praise of God. So how does God take a weak, foolish minister and through an apparently weak, foolish message, gather people, saving them through the message and knowing that by believing it, they too will be considered weak and foolish? That's what Paul answers in one, our passage this afternoon. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of the, this age understood it, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person that which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but it's himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I was reminded of a story, probably, I'm sure it is, um, you know, an urban myth about the way that our presuppositions colour our conclusions. And the story goes, a man was diagnosed with depression, nothing seemed to help him. He went from doctor to doctor, went from treatment to treatment, nothing made a change in his condition. Eventually, having tried everything, he um, went for surgery in the last-ditch effort to remedy his depression. And lying on the table with the surgeons and nurses waiting to go under the anaesthetic, he's asked if he is comfortable. And when the nurse recognised his accent, she intervened 
and understood the reason why no treatment had ever worked and halted the operation because he wasn't depressed, he was Scottish. My apologies. But sometimes, despite the best wisdom available, we miss the truth. We read the situation through the lenses of our assumptions and we reach faulty conclusions. That's what Paul is saying happens with the gospel in the world. The world hears the gospel message. God has come in Jesus Christ to save sinners on a cross. And in light of the world's presuppositions, rejects the message as foolishness. But Paul wants us to understand that though the world considers it folly, the gospel is the only definition of wisdom. That's Paul's point in verses 6 to 9, where he's setting up his argument for verses 10 to 16. So verse 6, the gospel message, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. In other words, the world misses it completely. Living in rebellion against God, the human mind has been darkened by sin. And verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. If you want proof to demonstrate that people misunderstand the wisdom of God, look at the cross. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, made flesh, taking our humanity, except in his case it was sinless humanity, united to perfect deity, For us in our redemption, he came to make God known to us. Jesus came to make God known. The world has been searching for God, groping in the darkness toward God, seeking to discover him, knowing he is, but not knowing him, unable to find him. How should we have responded when he came to us in Jesus Christ, despite our ignorance and sin? Shouldn't we have said, here he is at last? The God for whom we have been searching for so long has come to us in Jesus. Instead, we nailed him to a Roman cross. We spat on him. For all its claims of wisdom, the world misses the wisdom of God completely. That is the force of Paul's paraphrase of Isaiah 64 verse 4. We see in verse 9, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. It's a very famous verse, very misunderstood. We often understand it as a verse referring to heaven, which is a, clearly it's a truth, but it's not what 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 means. Paul is talking about God's secret hidden wisdom that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. The message that hearts couldn't search out, ears over here at hearts invent. It is a message beyond our capacity to deduce or calculate or discover on our own. So how can anyone know God? How is it the Corinthians have come to know God? Well, look at verses 10 to 16 to see Paul's threefold answer. In verses 10 and 11, he talks about revelation, God revealing himself. In verses 12 and 13, he talks about inspiration, the revelation written down, communicated by the apostles. And in verses 14 to 16, illumination that God deploys the spirit of God to give light to our understanding that we might receive the truth that has been preserved for us in the scriptures. So number one, revelation, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, 
These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, which is the claim of the Christian gospel, that it isn't a body of ethics developed over time, hammered out on the anvil of human experience. Neither is it a collection of philosophical reasoning or the product of scientific investigation. It is not the best guess of the religious imagination. No, it's the revealed truth, revealed by God the Holy Spirit to the apostles. See, in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul is speaking in the first person. I, when I came to you, didn't come with lofty speech. I decided to know nothing um, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and fear and so on. First person. This is a unique experience of Paul. But in verse 6 and on, he adopts the second person plural. Verse 6, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us. Now he's talking about himself with the other apostles to whom God by his spirit has revealed the truth that Paul has been preaching. The apostolic message isn't the invention of the church, not the invention of Paul or Peter or John. It's a declaration of the revelation of God to the world. And look at the illustration that Paul uses to help us understand how this works. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts? except the spirit of that person which is in him. So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. I don't know what you're thinking. The only person who knows our thoughts is ourselves. So likewise, the only person who can penetrate the depths of God is the spirit of God himself. And it is the spirit who comes to us and reveals to us these great things. Paul and the apostles are sharing what has been revealed So if you want to know God, you must have revelation. But secondly, look at inspiration, verses 12 and 13. Having affirmed the revelation of the gospel given by the Spirit to the apostles, Paul tells us where we can turn for that revelation for ourselves. Verse 12, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The apostles have been given the Spirit, who has revealed to them the meaning and significance of the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, reign of Jesus. Some conclude the way inspiration works is that God the Holy Spirit reveals the big ideas to the apostles and then leaves them them to themselves to find the best way to communicate that to the world. And so the idea goes in complete error that the Bible is of historical relevance and significance and we today must copy what the apostles did and ourselves give our best attempt to respond to direct divine communication and engage with the divine spirit for ourselves. It sounds ever so great and good and pious and beautiful but it's wrong. Because it gives you a Bible you can't trust. No sure word from God. And it's not what Paul says. If you look at verse 13, he isn't saying the Spirit revealed the big ideas and then we communicate that on with fallible words. No, he says we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit. 
The words themselves, brothers and sisters, should be electrifying to us. So pick up the book. The words on the page are the words given by the Spirit to the apostles to communicate to you the revelation of God for the salvation of your soul. This is extraordinarily glorious. What a precious book we have in the Bible. And look at the last clause in verse 13. The words of the New Testament are words taught by the Spirit as the apostles interpret spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. If you're using the ESV, you see there's a little footnote that indicates that the difficult Greek is capable of various translations into English. A very wooden literal rendering of Paul's language would read something like, we combine, compare, explain spiritual things with spiritual things. I think Paul is teaching us that the Spirit of of God taught the words to use to convey the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we do that by making use of spirit-given vocabulary to match spirit-given reality. We fit spiritual things to spiritual words, so there is a precise, perfect correspondence between the revelation of Jesus Christ and the words on the page of the book by which the apostles communicated it to us. Which is all to say we can trust the Bible. God himself is talking. As you hear the word of God read, You hear the voice of God, which is why we say we give thanks for the inherent word of God or this is the inspired word of God because it's God who is talking. It is the mouth of God. It is the voice of God. How can you neglect such a book? It is God speaking in his words. This isn't to be placed on a par with other historical texts. This is the very word of God. This is the mouth of God speaking to your soul. How do we dare neglect the book of God and you and I need the words on the pages to be simply and clearly and systematically explained and applied to our hearts and our heads which is why I preach the way I do because it is the word of God it is the mouth of God so we need the words to be simply and clearly and systematically explained and applied But it's why our spiritual lives shrivel and die when our Bible stays closed and gathers dust on our shelves. It's why church no longer excites us or nourishes us and inflames us. Because all too often I hear things like, well, it's just too boring for me. You say the same thing or it's boring. And the truth is, The reason why church no longer excites you is because the last time you opened your Bible was the last time you came to church. A week ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, if you neglect the Bible, you neglect your own soul. A closed book and spiritual decline always go together. And finally, illumination. If you remember the problem that Paul has been wrestling with from chapter one, the problem of the way people respond even to revelation from God, They reject it. Paul really crystallises and states the problem brilliantly in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of God, Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. There's a wonderful illustration of this Martin Lloyd-Jones telling the story of Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, the great advocate for the 
abolition of slavery, who was good friends with the Prime Minister, William Pitt the Younger. And William Wilforce brought William Pitt Jr. to church one Sunday to hear the evangelical preacher Richard Cecil. And they show up, they went to the pew, they go, they, 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 they go through the worship service together, the same worship service. And this is what happens in Lloyd-Jones's words. Richard Cecil preached and expounded the glories of the kingdom of God and the relationship of the child to God the Father. And Wilberforce was in ecstasy, I beg your pardon, rejoicing and reveling in this glorious truth. And at the end of the service, they walked out and Wilberforce is wondering in his heart, I wonder what the Lord is doing, because that was such an amazing sermon. What is the Lord doing in William Pitt's life? I hope he was listening. And he's just longing to hear the feedback. And as they get outside the vestibule, Pitt turns to Wilberforce, who had been so ravished by the exposition, and said, I didn't understand a word the man was saying, what was it all about? How do you account for that? They heard the same outstanding message. They were two great intelligent men, went through the same worship service. And one's on flights of joy under the ministry of the word, and the other couldn't make head and a tail of it. Verse 14 accounts for it. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned, which is the difference between William Pitt and William Wilberforce. Some of you were in darkness and have been brought into the light. Some of you can remember the day the Spirit of God turned the lights on, and you saw the truth, the truth about yourself, the, your sin, your need, and the truth about Jesus, a perfect saviour. And you're enabled to run to him and trust him. You receive forgiveness and you are made a new creature. And now you see and as you hear the word, it is life and light. It is food for your soul. It is guidance for your steps. It is riches. It is a source of joy. But others have heard the same message week in, week out, and cannot make a head and a tail of it. They're still a natural person, not a spiritual person. God the Spirit hasn't yet broken in and given the light of life shining upon you, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You'll hear the greatest preachers sit under the best arguments. You have Christian friends who plead with you day in, day out. They'll have no effect unless God by his spirit gives you light. You can't reason your way to this. You cannot be argued into it. You don't, don't stumble on it. It is the work of God. So today, if you relate to Pitt rather than Wilberforce, your need is not for a better argument. It is for the outpouring of the Spirit of God to turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh, to open your eyes, to see that while you have been ready, as Charles Spurgeon said in his testimony, to do 50 things, only one thing is needed to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul asks a rhetorical question. For who has understood the mind of God so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. As though he was anticipating an objection. No one has an encyclopedia knowledge of everything. This is what we have in the Bible. We have access to the mind of Christ. 
God by his spirit enlightening our understanding, guiding our steps. So as he puts it in verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things. We find our way under the governance and direction of God through his word. The mind of Christ is ours. No longer bumbling in the darkness, we see. And yet for all the glories of the scriptures, for all the access it provides us to divine revelation, unless and until the spirit gives you light, you will never see. So cry to God to open your heart and your eyes that you might behold glorious things in his words. Cry to God that he would make you a new creation, that he would bring you to Jesus. And cry to God that he would turn the lights on, illuminate the dark room of your mind to see your need and to see how Jesus perfectly meets that need so that you might run to him today without delay. What the world thinks is foolish, the gospel of the cross is in fact the revelation of God to the world. And we have access to the revelation of God through the inspired words of the apostles preserved in our Bibles. And it is only by the illumination of the Holy Spirit that saving understanding will ever dawn in our hearts. Would you pray that the Spirit of God would give you revelation, inspiration, illumination? May the Lord bless to us his holy word that all of us might come to love the book divine and by the illumination of the Spirit hear and respond to his word 